You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, August the 2nd. It is day two of the Qatar Goodwood Festival. Glorious Goodwood, which will be rather inglorious today uh, from a, a weather perspective. 6.8 millimetres of rain fell overnight, a pretty steady rain too. Uh, going is now soft and uh, there's more to come very shortly, we believe. It's going to be a pretty damp uh, day all round. But there was much to lift the spirits yesterday, uh, not least a sparkling performance in the Goodwood Cup, the Group 1 Goodwood Cup from the uh, relentless Quickthorn, who did exactly as he'd done in the Lonsdale at York last year, but barnstorming, shock and awe performance under a ride of great guile and quality from Tom Marquand. And after the race, the stewards uh, had four of the jockeys, four of the defeated jockeys, into the stewards' room to account for not pursuing Quickthorn earlier in the race and perhaps riding rather misjudged races, the school of thought being that Marquand had rather nicked the race and, and the jockeys had been caught, caught napping. It was rather a case of the quick and the dead if you will. Uh, We'll be hearing from one of those riders in a minute, David Egan. Um, But first of all, I saw the perspective of trainer Huey Morrison on exactly how Quickthorn produced the performance that he did in yesterday's Group 1 Goodwood Cup. He's got real speed there and nobody really uh, did recognition of doing that for two miles. It's difficult for people to really accept. Um, You know, the the second and third furlong were very quick. Even the penultimate furlong was quite quick. And you know, as Oshim said, we couldn't go with them. He, he's not called Quick Thorn for nothing. <laughs> and there's an, an extraordinary picture of him that Dan Abraham took yesterday with all four feet off the ground as he's passing the line and the others toiling in his wake. It seems that when he really sort of is wound up and reaches sort of full, full pelt, he's just, he's just got a, a remorselessness about him that you don't see in, in, in that many horses. I mean, is, does he exhibit that at home? Is that the sort of horse he is generally? Yes, when he get, you, he, we usually try to drop him in behind, otherwise it'll do too much behind another horse. <clears throat> otherwise he'll, uh, he does too much. But he, you, you can have your back turned to the, the gallop, or the, you know, the all-weather woodchip gallop, and you, can, you know when he goes past, because you, you, the, the time lapse between each stride is so different from every other horse's. And, and you, you look at him and the speed he showed and the times he ran and the sectionals he put in and you think, well, surely he's a horse that could, could actually do something quite special over, say, a mile and a half. But is that not the case? Well, you know, he still won it, he still won it Royal Ascot over a mile and a half. Uh, I've always I felt um, that on deep ground over a mile and a half, he could be, he, he could be that... Yeah, nearly as good. Um, and I think the trouble is, we've all, he's run on deep ground last autumn and in autumn before when he probably got when he's gone over the top. You know, he put so much into his racing. He, you know, he he goes over the top by September. So uh, we've all, I think we've been slightly led astray by his in by thinking is he doesn't go on the deep ground at Longchamp when probably he's just had enough for the year. So, so my my crazy my crazy scheme that that I, I I cooked up was that maybe you could give him a break and then freshen him up and run him in the arc. But I, I don't know whether you'd be up for that kind of thing. Oh, well, I'm game for anything. I'm sure Lord Blythe. He's he, he's one who 
who made sure that we ended up at Goodwood. I was, I, I was quite happy to take the easy route and go back to France for the Group 2 and then go to the Lonsdale. But he, he was one saying, well, we've got to go for a, a, the Group 1. And, um, and, you know, good on him. I, I sort of bullied him, uh, not so sleepy, to go for the Great 1. And he, he won, he's won a Great 1. So it's extraordinary that... It's, uh, a couple with half, four or five mares have bred, bred both a grade one winner and a group one winner in the last 18 months. So that's the assessment of trainer Huey Morrison and listening to that alongside me here at Goodwood is uh, Rishi Passad, ITV and Racing TV broadcaster, well broadcaster for just about everyone to be honest with you, not sure. <laughs> Who are you working for this week? I'm not sure myself. Excellent. Uh, let's well, go with Racing TV today. Nick Luck Daily. Oh, well, oh, my favourite. It's my favourite. I forgot. I'm getting bad at remembering who I need to butter up. All right. You, no buttering up required. What do you make of Huey Morrison's comments? Really suggesting that for all that Tom Markham quite rightly got plaudits for his ride on Quickthorn, this wasn't his first rodeo. No. Yesterday in the pre-race build-up to uh, the big race, Steve Mellish kept reminding me of how impressive he was when he won the Lonsdale and the fact that he just ran everything ragged and he said the fact that he did that makes him a danger anytime he gets on the lead originally we both thought that Lone Eagle might be the horse to go with him but he sat back and in a, in a sense you know everyone saw it Tom Marquand got an easy first two furlongs and in that in that scenario you know that old cliches that people trot out every now and then that you can't lose a race in the first two furlongs well I'm afraid yesterday everybody else bar Quickthorn lost the race in the first two furlongs. Yeah, and I think... Well, I wonder what it felt like to be riding in behind Quickthorn yesterday. From, uh, for perspective, I put a call into David Egan, who was riding the fourth place Elder Elderov, and was one of the jockeys who was taken into the stewards room to account for not pursuing Quickthorn earlier and more aggressively. And this is what he had to say about how the race unfolded. From, from my point of view, I think that the damage was done very early and very quickly in the early stages of the race. Um, Tom was going sort of 12, 12 second furlongs along the bottom for the first couple of furlongs and he's going further and further clear and by the time he had created that large margin it's at the point of the track where it starts to climb and I just feel I'd say from my point of view and the others riding in the race if we start to close up that gap um, at that crucial part of the race where we probably needed to close it we'd probably sacrifice our chance of winning or even running well you know because um, on uh, testing conditions it's there's not many horses can do what, what quick torn did yesterday you know so if you could ride that race again, what would you have done on Eldar Eldarov? Would you have attended Quickthorn earlier? Is that what you're saying? That you had to be you had to be in behind rather than letting him get away in those first couple of furlongs? Yeah, and it was probably a case of the probably besides Quickthorn, no one else really seemed to be um, intent on sitting uh, that close or even making the pace besides quick form and um, myself included he's Elder Elderov is a horse who doesn't necessarily sit really close to the pace and I was probably as close as I've ever been really um, in a race um, at the top level and uh, yeah, it's just it's frustrating because we did let him get away, but um, Quickdoor has to be respected and he's put in a super performance. It's not like we've given him a free rope and he's and he's nicked the race. He's done that, but he's a very 
capable horse in his own right. It, it was very interesting. Yesterday, I think the Racing Post TV um, put up a clip where Asheen Murphy, who was riding Coltrane, who was leading the peloton, leading the rest of you for most of the race, said, you don't want to give a horse like Quickthorn too much rope. He's ridden Quickthorn a whole bunch of times. He knows that. So to what extent are you guys taking your cue from the person who's leading the, the rest of the pack? What, to what extent are you taking your cue from the judgment of, in this case, Asheen, but it could be anyone on any given day? Yeah, and I remember Oshin uh, saying to the press that Coltrane, just take Coltrane for example, he's a horse with quite a short burst of speed and probably can um, sustain that for a really long period of time. So I understand Oshin's thought process in the way he rode it exactly like that. As you said, he's ridden quick time before. He was leading the pack and he thought it would sacrifice his chances going in and following him and um, I felt I was in the, probably in a similar boat, I sat directly behind um, Oshin and uh, you know, I didn't want to sacrifice my winning chance but the, the crow had flown as you could say. Um, the stewards called some of you in afterwards, I'm not quite sure why they didn't call all of you in but anyway they called some of you in, um, what did they say? So they described, the people that were called in were described as uh, the jockeys capable of making a maneuver that were leading the pack or sitting close enough to do something about it. Um, I don't know myself why uh, the whole field wasn't called in because Goodwood's a switchback track. There's plenty of space if somebody did want to make the move. So um, in that, that point of view, I don't know why only some of us were called in, but we all gave our explanations in our thought process in seeing the horse go so far clear and then why the reasoning why we didn't go chasing him with uh, with a mile to run which was possibly expected of us but um obviously none of us thought was the right thing to do yeah i mean uh, clearly uh, and i suppose that's the point isn't it anyone sitting anywhere in the race with any kind of preconceived tactics when things aren't going your way you have to go with plan b plan c plan d yeah, and, uh, and Quickthorn at one point, he was probably, what, close to a furlong clear, I'd say, at one point under the trees, and he's beaten us by six, uh, diminishing six lengths, and the rest of the field has sort of finished, I think the first four was probably ahead within the first four or five, so um, I thought we all finished our race and probably rode sensible fractions if, if Quickthorn wasn't there, it was just he's a freak of nature who can go very fast at the beginning part of the race, get a breather in and kick at the same time as we were kicking from sort of 30 lengths behind him. David Egan there, good luck to him with his group race rides on this soggy Wednesday. Quite an interesting perspective I thought, Rishi. I mean, he, rather like you, said we lost the race in the first couple of films, because by the time we needed to get out there and chase, then we would have been making ground up the wrong part of the track, given the topography of the track, which I hadn't really taken into account. No, it's a, a very good and valid point. Um, just watching how the race developed, it seemed as if, uh, through the first part of the race, Quickthorn established that lead, and then he was able to do everything he did out in front, well clear, easily, partly down to, as you say, the topography of the course here on the Sussex Downs, and that sort of lent itself into his front-running style. And because he's obviously a very good horse and was in good form, 
the, the physics of, of what he was yeah. doing made it very hard for the other athletes to try and peg it back. Were the stewards right, A, to ask the question, and B, to only pull in a handful of the jockeys? No, I think the stewards should have pulled in every single jockey. So you think they were right to ask the question? I think they were right to ask the question, and I think they should have asked all of them um, what happened. And I, and I go back to the start of that race, that first two furlongs. It, it was key. But then, of course, then there's the other element of the race where why are they still sitting there when Quickthorn's bowling along in the front and no one's going after them? I think, you know, as, as, a, as someone who backed horses in behind, I backed two horses in behind, and I was sitting there going, is anyone going to make a move and get closer to him? Because he's having a very easy time at things in front. And just basically, as a race goer and as a racing fan, I wanted questions asked as well. Let's talk about yesterday's uh, whip review committee, uh, which... Uh, dispense the as expected and as much discussed already on this podcast 20 day ban to Jim Crowley for his ride on Hookham in the King George uh, for going three strikes over the permitted level of six which means 10 day ban doubled because it's a, a class one race Rob Hornby who went one over the threshold of six he picked up just a four day suspension for a not entirely dissimilar offence. It would have been eight days, but for the fact that the rule changed, Jonathan Harding and I were talking about yesterday, because effectively his good behaviour over the previous 200 rides, uh, and that meant it was two multiplied by two to four. Um, yes, it's getting more complicated. Yes, the amendments are making this, um, to use Lydia's word yesterday, more, more Byzantine by the, by the minute. But the, the key reaction is the reaction to Crowley's 20 days. Because it's really a question of the, the sport saying, 20 days for that? And then the BHA trying to defend and shore up their position. Exactly. You've summed up in the last part of what you said, you summed up exactly the, the, the dilemma that a lot of people in the sport are constantly faced with since these, the whip review began. Which is, when you watch the finish of the King George... You look at the race and immediately your thoughts are, what a fantastic race. There was no thought. And, and obviously, Nick, like you, we've been, you and I have been watching racing for decades. Like so many people who listen to this podcast, like so many people who follow the sport, watching horse racing for decades. And at no point watching that finish of that race, would you ever imagine that Jim Crowley would be banned for 20 days? No. There were two things that struck me yesterday. Two interesting comments that struck me. First was a comment from... Uh, Brandon Shea about uh, the, the relative rarity now of this happening in a high-profile race. And I, I completely am I'm with him there. You might say, well, you would be because you were part of the original steering group. But yeah, the, the original intention was to stop win at all costs in the biggest races, to stop flagrant rule breaches yeah. when, when the stakes were at their highest. So to that end, you could argue that this was the exception that proved the rule uh, and the harsh penalty is what was required I mean I would I would counter that by saying had the original recommendations been uh, put in place then he would have got a 10 day ban yesterday not a 20 day ban but I've laboured that point even already 10 days, even 10 days is harsh watching the finish of the race again even 10 days I think would be harsh for, for Jim Crowley but I, but I accept Brand's point that, that you know you're, you're trying to the whole point of it is you're trying to deter people from winning at all costs I was interested in Jim Crowley's point to Lydia in the interview on Racing TV that he said that you, you, the last thing you're thinking about is counting, which is counter to almost every other senior jockey who says, of course we can count. We know exactly what we're doing. We, we, we count the six. We count the six. No problem. Uh, it, that's, that's an, that was an interesting point. Yeah. And he compared it to other sports as well, talking about whether it was tennis and trying to, I don't know, keep count of the, the rallies or if you're in a, a car and you've got a million things to think about in Formula One. I, I think there's some validity to that still. 
primarily because of the scenario of a big race and being involved. I mean, that was a, a titanic tussle between those two horses, Westover and Huckham. The way they, they locked horns so far out, it is, it is conceivable that both riders could have forgotten what they were doing yeah. in terms of... So, so, when, so when everyone's screaming blue murder, the question I need to ask the people who are really extreme on this is, how would you rewrite the rules? It's so difficult to try and rewrite the rules. I mean, you and I were talking a few moments ago before we began recording this podcast, and I mentioned the word discretion. And I think discretion makes it very hard for the riders and the, the, the people who are competing. Yeah, the, the riders didn't want discretion. Absolutely. So I think you have to remove discretion. And the only way you remove discretion is by, is by putting in, a number incurring, on it. Incurring penalties, a fixed number. But I think this number that we have is becoming a little bit harder to defend when you think when you if you're saying that the whip doesn't hurt the horse there is science to prove this and that you are going to put a limit on the number of strikes why are you limiting the number of strikes to six seven eight nine ten what's what's the thinking about the number that you come to how do you decide what is the right number you were part of that i mean i i don't envy you well, whatsoever. right here's i've said this publicly and i'll say it again in those, dis- in, in those discussions, there were people around that table who wanted the whip abolished, and there were people around the table at the other end who, who didn't feel that the number of strikes that already existed, so it was eight over jumps and seven on the flat that have now come down, needed to be changed. And I was someone who's, who made the exact point that you made. If we have made the ethical case for the use of a Brokush whip and technologically advancing that whip over time, all the time, all the time, using science, trying to make it better, trying to make it fairer, trying to make it kinder, all of that, then if you start chipping off the off the number block what message are you sending you're 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 saying something fundamentally contradictory and that was my point all along which is why i for one was delighted when the original recommendations came out not to move the numbers down from what they had been and that's why i was a bit annoyed when the the numbers did come down in the in the bargain that went on with the jockeys before christmas and i'm of i'm entirely on your side i i can't see the logic in saying to you if there are people who want to abolish the whip versus people who want to keep the whip and those people who keep the whip they're saying that the whip is it's not a punishment to the horse it's there for encouragement and therefore uh it there's to make noise it doesn't hurt the horse etc so then you've you've as you said ethically uh convinced yourself and convinced the sport that the whip is kept then limiting it and putting the jockeys in this awkward position that they've been in and Jim Crowley's actually one of the other comments he made was that you won't find another jockey in there who would disagree with him that it that the rules are constantly proving a, a challenge for them so I think the numbers need to be looked at again I think the numbers are wrong I think we need to consider the fact that you know but the genie's out of the bottle now. What do you do? You can't, you can't go back up. That's but the Jim, problem. But the, the point, yeah, I, I get that. I get that, what you're saying. But Jim Crowley has ridden what everybody, most people, 99% of people in racing would consider to have been a, a good race, in a big race, one of, the, one of the best races that we've had for the King George in a long time. And then this is the fallout of it. In, when, ten, in 10 years' time, are we going to be looking back and think, I can't believe we were having this bloody conversation. We, we should have just done away with it then and be done with it. Was it all a massive mistake? What, just should have just done away with it. Well, done no. away with a whip full stop. Or should we have not even entered this debate? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the latter. Anyway, on we go. So I apologise. I'm, 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 I'm hoping if you if you are thoroughly cheesed off with this, that um, that you forwarded through that. Uh, <laughs> I, I need to talk to you about Frankie Dottori because he won yesterday on Kin Ross and then confirmed 
uh, in the interview afterwards that he would ride Kinross if Mark Chan wanted him to in, in, in the Hong Kong international meeting in December. So this retirement is gradually being shunted back and back and back and back. Breeders' Cup, Melbourne, Hong Kong. Yeah, what, if, what if he rides a, a nice horse for a trainer in America that might be a Kentucky Derby horse? So. In, well, indeed. It could keep going. It, it, it could conceivably Exciting do, times then. Exciting times for Frankie Dettori and his fans. We'll be able to squeeze a little bit more juice out of the lemon. Um, but he's clearly enjoying it. And, and as he said, that horse has been a, a real money spinner for him. Love Kinross. Um, and I think the way... I mean, it's been a King Great Horse. <laughs> a, lot, <laughs> a lot has been made about the way Rafe has trained Kinross um, this season. I love the way he finished off last season. And I thought he was unlucky not to win the Breeders' Cup mile as well. Um, I can imagine that he could have another dip at that. Um, and if he got a better draw, better luck in running uh, on his run from last year, modern games, you know, what beat him. But I think he was probably the best horse in the race. Tell you who else will be at the Breeders' Cup this year. Forte, the horse who returned to the track last weekend in the Jim Dandy Stakes at Saratoga and won in a you know, very controversial race, which many American observers thought he should have been disqualified from. Uh, beat a horse called Saudi Crown. Uh, with whom he interfered persistently up the uh, up the stretch, but he kept the race. I think in England under under our Cat A rules, I think he'd have kept the kept the race as well. Um, he's owned by uh, Mike Rapoli, the the beverage billionaire, uh, who also owns Nest, and she won at the weekend as well. She won the Shuby Stakes on her comeback, thrashing Clarier. She looks even better fully than she had done last year. Um, Rapoli's a man who's had very strong views about the future of the sport of late, particularly in the wake of Forte's enforced withdrawal from the Kentucky Derby uh, by the veterinary officials at Churchill Downs. He has strong views on Heister, on Haiwu, on um, the need for a a racing commissioner. He's gone public with that. uh, And he sort of threatened to get out of the sport if things didn't turn around in the next three or four years. I caught up with him uh, last night. And I began by asking him how he was feeling about the game right now in the wake of events at the weekend. Well, Nick, it's been a roller coaster of four months, so um, the inquiry has didn't feel as long as the last four months. But uh, you know, I, I felt like I won the race three times. Uh, uh, the slow motion, I said, I think we got it. Then we won the photo, and then we had to win the inquiry. So, uh, so I think I won a great two, three times within uh, 20 minutes. So, uh, very exciting, and obviously very nervous. But uh, I'm just excited that Forte is back. Excited that he got through the winner's circle, and excited that he's a he's a winner and he's the best three-year-old in the country right now. I mean, how how emotionally invested were you? over the weekend in, in his performance, in, in his comeback after everything that, that he has been through through the last sort of three or four months? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can almost compare it to, you know, when Uncle Mo scratched, um, when, when scratched out of the derby because of uh, his liver ailment, you know, when he came back, you know, Todd did an amazing job training him and he ran in what was called the King's Bishop, which uh, is um, the Alan Jerkings now. And he lost by a nose to Caleb's posse. And I just, you know, I was so, oof, I was so drained and tired. And 30 minutes later, people forget Stay Thirsty when the Travers. But Uncle Mo losing that race was almost offset by Stay Thirsty. Was, was almost not offset by Stay Thirsty winning the Travers. I kind of felt that way here where it was just four months of amazing roller coaster. So happy for Todd. Uh, Irad, Todd's Bond, the Rapoli Stable team, and uh, and most importantly Forte. Um, 
you know, it was a special, special win. And to get him back in the winner's circle since the Florida Derby felt really, really good. There's going to be a lot of debate between now and, and the end of the year, I think, as to, as to who lands up the, the leading three-year-old of this campaign. Are you, are you pretty confident in your own mind that your horse can take another big step forward from that run uh, as he meets stronger competition in the Travers? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nick, remember, he's only had really two races in 17 weeks. You know, I mean, because he had to go, um, you know, 10 weeks without a start to go a mile and a half, the the um, the, the test of champions in the Belmont, and really to, to run an incredible second. Um, Archangelo ran a great race. Uh, Javier snuck up inside on the rail, saved a lot of ground. That might have been the uh, the difference in 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 the, in the outcome, um, you know. And then seven weeks later to be in this race and and to come back, um, the speed figure came up very very big. Um, all the horses ran really really big, and uh, yeah, I, I think coming back four weeks later, I think he's going to be tighter, stronger, better, and I think that we're going to have a really 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 big effort in the in the Travers, and um, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be really exciting. You've had a lot to say about the game over the last couple of months, Mike. How do you feel about it now after the weekend? Yeah, I mean, my frustration level about the game, you know, isn't any different whether, you know, Nest wins or Forte wins. I mean, you know, I want a game that is better for the racing fans. I want a game that's better for the the betters. I want a game that's better for the trainers, the owners, the jockeys, the backstretch. Um, and, and, of course, best for the horses. And then, and I think that we're losing sight of that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, listen, some people might love my stand and some people might hate my stand. And I'm really not worried about the people that hate the stand. I mean, I'm doing this, uh, you know, I, I might have the best three-year-old Colt. I might have the best older Philly. I might have the best uh, dirt, uh, I mean, turf older horse with up to the mark. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sticking my nose into something right now when, when really uh, my stable's at the top of its game. But I'm not doing it for Rapoli's stable. I'm doing it for, for the future of the sport, not just this week, but what about two years from now, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, and 25 years from now, you know? So um, I think that there needs to be some big changes. We talked about it for years, and nobody ever does anything. So I, I want to move the game forward. Because I really feel, Nick, that if the game doesn't move forward now, um, it's not going to be able to recover over the next four to five years. I mean, I know you've articulated this at some length, but if you were to, if you were to give me just a couple of things that you think could make, or at least produce the first couple of steps towards significant change for the better in the sport, what would they be? Yeah, I, I think the owners and trainers and jockeys need to really lead the sport right now. Um, you know, it's got to be out of the hands out of these associations that don't do anything, and it's got to be out of the hands of the tracks. We can't be uh, we can't be victim to uh, to the tracks running uh, running running the industry. So, um, in the NFL, the commissioner reports to the owners. In the NBA, the commissioner reports to you know to the owners. So, I, I think it's time now that we've relied too much on organizations that really get nothing done in tracks that really are just self-serving and just worried about, you know, their handle, their purses, uh, their stock prices and what they do. And somebody has to come in here and look at the totality um, of the sport and and what's best for the sport, not what's best for Micropoli, not what's best for this racetrack, not what's best for the, this trainer. 
Um, and I think someone's got to take a, a view that's really about what's great, what's right for the horse and what's race for horse racing and what's right for the fans and the better. So um, I think that the owners, trainers and jockeys need to you know, really work together now. And we're starting to do that now and having conversations and then really taking our plan to everybody and saying, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, we're spending a lot of money in this game. And uh, and it's a shame that, uh, you know, right now the owners who are spending the most money, the trainers and tr jockeys that spend the most time and risk their life, the jockeys, you know, I'm all for HISA. I'm all for better um, restrictions. I'm all for getting cheaters out of the game. I'm all for horse safety. I'm all for horse integrity. But we now have to start worrying about trainers, jockeys, backstretch, gamblers, fans, and the owners, and that's gonna that's gonna start to change over the next six months. Well, which means we need we need a, a commissioner for the sport, which is which is what you also call for. Would you do it if you were asked? Uh, I'm not gonna do it because uh, uh, I have five million other things, but I sure don't mind being the chairman and uh, being in charge of a board that will pick a commissioner and a, and a board that will also work very closely with HISA, work very closely with the other racetracks, um, talk to the betters, talk to the fans, do more marketing and PR than's ever been done. The only marketing and PR, Nick, that we get in this game is negative. I mean, we get no positive stories. So many great stories about this. A day at Saratoga, a day at Del Mar, uh, the Kentucky Derby. You know, listen, they're simple things. The, the Kentucky Derby and the Triple Crown have to be looked at very closely. When only one horse, the winner of the Kentucky Derby, goes to the Preakness two weeks later, you know, there's a big issue there. I mean, you know, having 20 horses in a race, you know, Nick, uh, you obviously know this game internationally probably better than anybody. I mean, do you think 20 horses around two turns in a dirt race in the U.S. is, is safe for horses? Well, it's a it's a it's a very good question. It's certainly safer than it was since they since they abolished the the use of the the auxiliary gate. Um, but is is a twenty horse race for an experienced three year old in twenty twenty two the best way of showcasing the sport? Well, that's a moot point. And is asking horses to back up two weeks off the back of that particularly fair in the context of the sport as it is now? Um, I'm not so sure. So you know, I, I can see the argument for for spacing the triple crown out better. I mean, how, how many times is a jockey running a 20-horse two-turn uh, race in the United States, Nick? Well, once, if he's, if he's lucky, if he or she is lucky. Is lucky. So, um, you know, jockeys have never been in that position. Horses have never been in that position. Three-year-olds have never been in that position. And, uh, you know, to do it on that stage right now is, is, not, is not what needs to be done. And, and I'm not sure why uh, someone hasn't spoken up about that before. And, um, you know, I think something needs to be done. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't think owners and trainers and jockeys should be participating in a race that's not only dangerous to horses, but also dangerous to jockeys and everybody else and, and, can, and can do a lot of damage to the sport and can kill it forever if, God forbid, something happens in a race like that. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? So it's the, it's the race that is the most unique spectacle or is a unique spectacle that has the highest profile that you think paradoxically could do the sport the most the most. Uh, reputational damage well let, let, let's just pretend war, war of will wasn't the greatest athletic horse in history and and he went down a couple of years ago with tyler galfion what would have happened to the 18 horses behind him there's probably six or seven horses that don't belong in the race anyway and uh you know even though you might get a rich strike if you ever look at the over the overview counter angle of rich strike 
you know, that, that, that incredible jockey race was very close to a disaster. There's three or four times that he almost backed up right into a horse or took the horse into the rail, and it looked like a, uh, a car going 150 miles an hour on the expressway while cops were chasing him down the road. Um, I don't think that's, uh, you know, that was uh, 1% brilliant and 99% reckless. So uh, we got away with it. I think that right now hmm. we can't do any more damage to the sport. I think it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people will be listening and they'll be thinking, right, this is another example of you know, bending to public perception rather than having confidence in the essence of the sport and realizing that there is always some level of of risk in top class sport versus your argument, which I think is more like um, if you are going to have a race that is the shop window for for the sport and is the one race that the nation still watches year in, year out – then it's got to be more. Um, it's got to look like the sport for the rest of the year. It's got to represent the sport and what the sport actually looks like and appears to be for the remainder of the year. I think that's where you're coming from. Well, I mean, listen, 100%. I'm going for that, but I think I'm actually saying it like, how is this not so obvious to everybody in this game? I mean, this is not what horse racing is about there were never 20 horse fields there would never be 20 horse fields anywhere else so there's no need to have a 20 horse field or an auxiliary gate or a single gate it's, it's there's no need you know and the other thing is that that race that purse being two to three million dollars you know that's another joke i mean i mean with races in saudi for 20 million or dubai for 10 or 12 like that race should be 10 to 20 million dollars I mean, why? Why is the Kentucky Derby three million? Well, I, this is—I I did. I made this point to somebody the other day when they were talking about the Preakness and the Belmont, and I said, "Well, you're not incentivizing people to race on into the second and third legs of the Triple Crown unless those races have a significant prize money pot, or at least if there's a bonus for the horse that does best in all three legs, um, as there as there was, of course, once the the famous Visa bonus." So I. Yeah, I don't think that. I think that the rest of the world has, has caught up and overtaken on that score for sure. Yeah. No, it needs to, you know, running for two, three million dollars, you know, it, it doesn't make it exciting. And uh, and especially with 20 horses in a race, to, to me, um, you want to do it? Let's 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 relook at the derby. I mean, I don't think in the NFL they play with leather helmets anymore. Um, you know, I think things have changed. Uh, running horses back in two weeks. And last year when Mage was the only horse that came back, um you know, what does that tell you? And for the six horses that don't get to run in the Derby, guess what? They might be waiting to run for the Preakness, you know, three or four weeks later when it should be run. So I think three weeks is minimum, four weeks is more ideal. Um, and I think it should make it more interesting and a, and a fun a triple crown with seeing the same horses run against each other two times and three times, not one time, and then maybe in the Belmont. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, Mike, it's always it's always good to talk to you. Um, hopefully, we'll be talking again in a couple of months' time. By which time, a commissioner will have been reappointed. They'll have rejigged the triple crown, and something will have been done about the safety factor for the Kentucky Derby. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Look, Nick, if you're interested in being the commissioner, you're on my list. Okay. <laughs> All right. Think about it. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Cheers. Uh, Mike Rapoli there with all sorts of interesting thoughts on the future of the sport, some of which I'm sure you'll agree with, others you you possibly won't, but uh, he is a man who is going to make his voice well and truly heard over the next few years, and it'll be fascinating to see whether there is a field size reduction in the Kentucky Derby, or if indeed those Triple Crown races will be spaced further apart. Uh, well done to him with Forte, who is now second 
in the um, voted rankings in the Breeders' Cup Classic Division at the moment, and Ness, who will be a, a, a really high-class performer in all the big fillies races between now and the Breeders' Cup Distaff, you would imagine. Now, yesterday was the annual cricket match here at Goodwood. It takes place uh, just at the foot of Goodwood House, beautiful cricket ground between the Lord March 11 and the Lord's Taverners. Now, requiring 21 off the final over, the Lord's Taverners 11 snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, or should I say, um, defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory by our brave boys, amongst whom was this podcast's very own Tom Stanley. Uh, well, um, I think we were probably in running about uh, 1 to 20 to win with two overs left. And even we managed to find a way to blow it. We were brilliantly captained by John O. Spence. Um, but the man that took the last over, who, who shall remain nameless, um, could just conceded a few. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we unfortunately lost. I came, I came mainly to watch you, and, and I didn't see you back. No, I scored, <laughs> I scored three or three. But see, see, I had to keep... You scored three off... or I faced three balls and scored three runs. That's a 100% strike rate. Uh, but I had to keep giving the strike back to John O. Um, who who hit plenty of runs, so um, so he did very well. Um, it was a great it was a great evening, great food, great drink. We just didn't savour a win, sadly. I did see you bowl. Yes. And what did you think? I thought you were bowling beautifully until some ringer <laughs> plonked you for six and four very quickly. Bowling brilliantly until the last two balls. Yeah, I was dispatched. But at that point. That, that was a turning point in the game and I thought, listen, let's make it exciting at least. Um, but still, yeah, we managed to, to snatch defeat from the, from the jaws of victory. But we avoided the rain, which was fortunate. Just starting to drizzle now. Um, John O'Spence was captaining the side, uh, the, the Lord March 11. Um, John, I, it, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't nail-biting stuff because you were winning and winning and winning and winning. And people were going, well, we're going to go home because they're going to win. And then... Then the O'Brien brothers came to the crease and... Annoyingly, one of them was a very, very good batsman and gave us, unfortunately, too much of a run for our money. And yeah, I think it was seven, seven or eight sixes in his innings. So Tom Fillery had done very well, made 48, but then we sort of run out, run out of puff with the ball in his hand. I think is a fair comment. See, I said he will remain nameless. (laughs) 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 He gave, he gave with one hand and. Uh, yes. They were very. They, he was very good. The guy. When I first knew Sussex trainer Nick Gifford, he was borderline Sussex County standard, and today was coming in off his shorter run. Yeah, short run, Nick. No, the, yeah, the, the, the shoulders and, and the knees are heavily strapped, so it was the short run and bowled as slow as I could because they couldn't hit me. And standing up even to the quicks was uh, the Daily Telegraph's Marcus Armitage. I couldn't see it. It's too dark here. Too many trees to run. You did, you, did, you did appeal, the sort of half-hearted appeal for a stumping. that, From my vantage point on the boundary, I thought was a, quite a neat bit of glove work. Uh, no, it's way too slow. It's slow motion. And uh, I got two catches. One because it just wedged in my stomach because it was bowling so fast. I couldn't see it. And uh, it winded me. And... Uh, I caught that bad boy out who was giving us a bit of a bit of verbal out there. So uh, that was good. a bit of sledging. I mean, this made Broad and Kerry look like a pair of schoolboys, didn't it? It did. It did. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of bad language going on out there. But we're we're all. Good Have you friends, ever experienced man. anything like it in the genteel surrounds of Goodwood House? I haven't even 
car- carving up John Joe O'Neill in a when I was a young seven pound claiming amateur he didn't call me those sort of words but anyway <laughs> there we go <laughs> Great fun last night. Now to our Whirlpool update for day two of the Qatar Goodwood Festival. Here's Jamie Hart of the Tote. Hello, Nick. Yeah, um, the Whirlpool is really gathering pace in the UK and Ireland with punters really getting behind it. We had one of our biggest days with UK and Irish punters punting into the Whirlpool yesterday up there with the best of the Royal Ascot days and even bigger than Epsom Derby Day for the UK contribution. Um, We also had great payouts we had five out of the eight winners were paid better on the world pool. Of course, we match on the other three, so you're never worse than SP. The value is always there in the world pool. And especially on the, the exotic bets, so the, the outside the win market, every single exacta and trifecta yesterday across the eight races paid more than the equivalent bookies forecast and tricast. So if you are looking for kind of first and second, first, second and third, that's where these massive pools really do start to pay out if you're a small stakes punter. Just looking ahead at... The second day today, looking at where you might get overpaid today, I think in the in the oak tree stakes, looking at those smaller name jockeys, so you could stay steering clear of your Ryan Moores and uh, and Joseph O'Brien's, and perhaps you know Clifford at the moment I can see Clifford Lee and Carl Burke have got fast responses, five to one chance in that race, but already that's paying more than ten to one on the whirlpool. So look at those kind of horses; that's where you'll find the value. Jamie Hart there from the Tote, and before that. Um, Marcus Armitage, Steve Jones, Nick Gifford and uh, our very own Tom Stanley, Rishi, uh, starring role last night as the uh, Lord March 11 went down uh, to the Lord's Taverners who got the 21 they required off the last over. Tom Stanley bowled, did he? He, he did bowl, yeah. What, what does he bowl? Um, well, uh, he was actually bowling, he bowled four nice deliveries. Uh, what, what's his action? Right arm over? He... And is it just sort of military medium? Is it off break? What, what does he bowl? Well, Nick Gifford, was, who's quite a handy cricketer, was giving them all advice. He said, you can't, to these like good, proper pros. Yeah. So the, the O'Briens played for Ireland, didn't they? Yeah, they yeah. did, yeah. Or do, whatever. One, well, Niall O'Brien is now into commentary, I think. So, but they're still both, he, they he, were both he superb says players. If you, if, you try, if you bowl at your, if it, if it really comes onto the bat against really, really good players, they'll yeah. just tonk you. Dead, yeah. So you need, he said you need to take all the pace off the ball. <laughs> so Tom took the pace off the ball <laughs> by intent, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was by intent. That's why I'm giving him credit. He looks the part, though, doesn't he? Well, that's the thing. I imagine, and he would he would have had probably some product in his hair that would have helped shine the ball on one side. Not sure it's entirely. He doesn't use any product. I don't use any product. Really? I've seen his I've seen his satchel. I know what's in there. Um, he so bowled. Tom Stanley bowled. He bowled. Wow. And he and he made three or three. Dot dot. Dot, dot, six, four. I'm glad he likes his cricketing terminology because obviously the strike rate of 100% is normally how we describe <laughs> it's three off three. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, could you give me a selection for today's racing at Goodwood, please, which is likely to be heavily affected by uh, the rain, uh, the going now soft. Um, are you expecting another success for Paddington? I expect Paddington to win again. Um, the last horse to win... St James's Palace, the Sussex, and the Eclipse. Can you remember? The St James's Palace takes the Eclipse and the Sussex takes. Yeah. Must be Giants Causeway. Correct. So I think he, there's a lot of Giants Causeway. I know it's men- been mentioned before. I think there's a lot of Giants Causeway about Paddington. In that, I think he saves plenty for himself, and I think he's going to continue his winning run. And of course, Paddington could do what Giants Causeway didn't do, 
which is to win those races and have won the Irish 2000 Guineas. And have won the Irish Correct. Giants Causeway was second in the Irish Guineas, wasn't indeed. he? Second in the Guineas, second in the Irish Guineas. Correct, indeed. But did he win that listed race earlier in the season? No. No. <laughs> Um, so I think Paddington will win. Um, can, I, can I just give you a bit of context here, as provided by our friends at the uh, Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings? Global current TRC Global Rankings of the competitors in this year's Qatar Sussex Stakes. Um, Paddington is seventh in the world uh, after building up a significant body of work. Inspiral is 91st in the world after her defeat behind Triple Time in the in the Queen Anne. Then you have to go down to 273rd in the world, Factor Cheval, who I think could be the, the, the key, the key to, to this race if it really gets wet, as you heard from Jerome Renier yesterday. 403 in the world, Chindit will hate the ground. 712, is that a non-runner? Non-runner, Chindit. Chindit's a non-runner. 712, Charin, who you heard about at the beginning of the programme, and 1,112, Aldari. Yeah, well, I, I like the fact that you've mentioned both Factor Cheval on the ground, as well as Aldari. Um, there was a thought when Baid was romping around the, the courses of Britain that Aldari might one day turn into a Group 1 miler. hasn't quite happened, but he'll have conditions to suit him today. I think he could potentially be a challenger to fill the spot behind Paddington. Listen, last time there was ground like this for the Sussex State, here comes when won it, for here goodness sake. So anything. days ever. Yeah. Absolutely, I remember that vividly. Here comes when Jim Crowley. It was it? wetter than on Otter's pocket that day. It was a horrible, horrible, a very apt description um, and accurate. Uh, it was awful, awful day. One, one that I'd like to forget. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much for listening. That was Wednesday, August the second. We'll be back to do it again tomorrow. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.